Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. My name is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is our medical director, uh, Dr. Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, everyone. Kevin Crocker is running the board for us today, and today we're going to talk about a subject that's near and dear to our heart here at MCHD, and that's ketamine. We want to take a little bit of a different approach to how we talk about ketamine and not get into specific dosing or pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. Um, really want to talk more about ketamine in our main use, and that's going to be to sedate patients and think about when do we, when do we want to take control. And when we talk about agitated patients, especially within protocols, it can be pretty difficult because an agitated patient can come in many, many different flavors. And, you know, I think the place where I want to start today is to try to get a better group of or better idea of how we group these anxious, difficult, agitated patients. And throw out a credit to Ruben Strayer, who's talked about this extensively. Um, and his three groups are, number one, agitated but cooperative patients. Number two, disruptive patients that aren't dangerous. And the third group is the agitated, excited delirium patients that we all know. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, kind of lead into this topic, Casey. And I mean, specifically, I can picture those patients in my mind's eye. I think if we look at them, those are in three distinct separate groups. Can you give us an example of each one of those groups? Yeah. So for our agitated but cooperative patient, I think let's, let's take an 88-year-old female from a local memory care home, low mechanism fall, say transfer fall. You get there, you see nothing visible on your exam. Loading her up onto the stretcher, she's pulling at her blood pressure cuff, she's asking for her husband and asking for her brother, something that we see all the time. Does this patient need four milligrams per kilogram of IM ketamine? Probably not, right? He was waiting, he's worried about my hesitation to answer that question. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm completely with you. No, I, I totally agree. So, yeah. and, the, and, the, and then this first group, this agitated but cooperative patient, oftentimes the best treatment for them is, is patience, right? right? Yeah, in New Zealand, they'd say she needs a cup of tea. Yeah. Right? Give her a cup of tea. Sitting, talk, hold her hand, be kind. We're, we're, we're good at that as well. You know, sometimes in the emergency department, you know, after arrival, not, you know, not per our MCHD protocols, these patients may need a little oral benzodiazepine if they're going to get a head CT, you know, it may progress to that. But again, in transport, oftentimes they just need their handheld. So that's group one, the agitated but cooperative patient. Uh, the second group, the disruptive without danger. Again, use another case example, 17-year-old male, local house party, drinking heavily. It's, you know, it's that time of year, right? It's prom season, graduation yes, parties. Yes, it is graduation. It's, it's that, that time of year. So friends, friends found him in the bedroom, passed out. You know, initially he's answering questions, you know, when you call his name, try to get him on the stretcher and he's flailing around. You know, you see no report of trauma, no sign of trauma normal vital signs, non-focal neuro exam. You know, again, this patient's disruptive. He's being a pain for you, but you don't see any big red flag worry signs. So, you know, how are you going to get him in the truck? How are you going to get him up on the stretcher and to leave his lines and his tubes and his blood pressure cuff alone? And this is one I think where we oftentimes would use benzos and IM or IV, depending on, you know, what your access is. Progressing on in the emergency department setting, sometimes we use you know, how it all in the ED and patients like this. But again, patients not agitated or disruptive to the point to reach the third group, and that's our excited delirium, agitated uh, delirium patients. And that's the 45-year-old found running naked in the street, handcuffed, tased, restrained, heart rate's 160, systolic's, you know, 210, 
diaphoretic sweating everywhere. I don't think there's any question that we know what to do with that patient. Yeah, everyone knows to do that guy. I mean, that's a dangerous, dangerous patient you're describing. I mean, uh, these folks can often have an overlying acute medical illness with their psychiatric illness. They may have severe uh, metabolic abnormalities with severe uh, metabolic acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, can have hyperthermia. It carries a very high mortality. I mean, it's kind of all over the board, but the general uh, thought out there is about one in 10 of these patients die of their illness. Yeah, so that, that, that patient gets ketamine, you know, straight away. That's, a, that's, that's the DART patient that we talk about. I don't think anybody out there is going to miss, miss that patient on an exam. Can you go over with the listeners, Casey, a little bit about just the diagnostic, the base diagnostic criteria for excited delirium? So I think excited delirium is one of those things that we, we know about and we probably all recognize, but there, there is a diagnostic uh, criteria scale that exists and it's 10 exam findings or 10, you know, 10 patient findings. If you have six of those, then by definition, you have excited delirium. And our patient in the last uh, little vignette had most of those, and you guys could probably name most of these off the top of your head. But tachypnea, diaphoresis, agitation, hyperthermia, police noncompliance, increased pain tolerance, lack of tiring, superhuman strength, uh, inappropriate clothing, naked, or I'm from in Kentucky, naked, N-E-K-K. ED. ED. That describes it. All these diagnostic criteria are positive and six or greater for about 70% of our medics. I don't know what I would do with that. N-E-K-K-I-D, actually. Maybe naked ID. I don't know. But uh, that was number nine. And the 10th, and it's, again, not common, and I don't really know why it's in the list, but it's an interesting one. If you've ever seen it, I've seen it once, and that's mirror glass attraction, which is always... Yeah, that's freakish, shouldn't it? Kind of, Where did that come from? Kind of weird. It's only in a, a small percent, less than 10% of excited delirium patients, but it's on the list. But so. we've all seen these guys that are like uh, totally out of their mind. They look like Jimi Hendrix. They've been smashing stuff. They're bleeding from everywhere. It's a thing about glass, isn't it? Yeah. I like to, like to break stuff. So to kind of, to kind of re reiterate what Dr. Patrick said. So you've got the little old lady agitated, but cooperative, and she just needs her hand held, uh, disruptive without danger. So that's our drunken teenager that may need an IM benzo or IM antipsychotic to settle them a little bit so we can get them worked up. And then the clearly agitated, excited delirium that has a lot of these diagnostic criteria held down by the police, tased, clearly dangerous, uh, altered mental status patient. So, and that, and that really is, is a rehash of Dr. Strayer's uh, lecture, again, that I've heard in several different flavors. But mm-hmm. what I wanted to add today and, and sort of, you know, bring the table for our service, and I think it applies to, to medics out there everywhere, is that I think that there's a fourth group that we need to sort of separate out and classify and really take note of. And we're on the uh, patient vignette kick here. So I'll give you a patient... And again, I think these patients are in the ketamine now group, just like the agitated delirium, excited delirium. So you got a 57-year-old who flips his truck, you know, going 85 down the freeway. You arrive on scene to find, you know, bruising to the left chest wall, alcohol on board, heart rate's 125. He's pulling off his C-collar, pulling off his blood pressure, pulling at, you know, blood pressure cuff, pulling at his lines. So, you know, by definition, is he excited delirium? Agitated delirium, not really, if you if you went down that list. I mean, really, he's a very dangerous, high-risk, high-mechanism trauma patient that's probably intoxicated as well. So it doesn't really fall in the definition of excited delirium, but I think this is one that we really need to consider, you know, ketamine straight away. We've seen 
cases like this in our service where the paramedics are doing their best, trying to control this patient. You got a 10 minute transport time, holding down his arms, redirecting him, re-strapping the C collar, and then you arrive at the receiving institution with a heart rate, no blood pressure, and right. no no IV access. And, and what's that doing to his brain injury? You know, is that when you when you're wrestling against five paramedics in the back of the rig, is that increasing your intracranial pressure and worsening your brain injury? or lessening your brain injury. I, I couldn't agree more that uh, that's a very appropriate uh, intervention. And when you think back to some of the medics who've been doing this while, well, how do we, how do we manage these patients? And how in historically, how have we managed them, right? They got a paralytic and they got an endotracheal tube with some sedation along with their sedation, which carries about a 1% risk of a surgical airway, right? So this is, it's not a benign intervention. So I think what you're suggesting here is, is someone who's already declared is sick. These are patients we know are sick, are clearly combative, we need to gain immediate control of them that it may be an option, an appropriate option, to sedate the patient with ketamine as long as they're oxygenating and ventilating on their own. Yeah, and, and didn't go through the full list of vitals on that patient, but you know, let's say that SAT was 98 and the patient was ventilating normally. I mean, that's not one that's a respiratory distress straight away intubation, right? I think that's what you're getting at is that there's a risk, inherent risk in intubation, and we're trying to avoid that. But we also don't want the ICP to be 200 because we're wrestling for 15 minutes trying to get to the hospital. So I think these are patients that aren't clear, defined, excited delirium, but they are clearly high risk. And I put several high risk factors in his in his case. And number one, major trauma. So high mechanism, alcohol, intoxication, going to make assessment difficult every single time. Uh, vital sign instability, tachycardia, and and all over the place in the back of the truck. And I think that's one we need we need to control straight away. And how would you answer, so some of the of the questions I get from medics when I give this case would be, well, how, the receiving doctor told me, well, gosh, you've sedated the patient. I can't get a proper neuro exam. What do I, how, what do I say to that, doc? Try to get a neuro exam on the patient before I gave him ketamine and see how you do then. That's, no, I think that's, that's a answer. good point. And in, in this planet, uh, the patient you just described, there's not one, I, I, Defy someone to bring me one that's not going to get a complete workup, including neuroimaging, right? That patient gets neuroimaged 100% of the time. And so is the neuro exam important? Absolutely. But I think what Dr. Patrick's point is, is that we can't do any examination unless we get control of that patient. And when we think about IM ketamine, we give pediatric patients IM ketamine every day of the week in the emergency department to sew lip locks. And we send them home to go play 60 75, 90 minutes later. So it's not like a four milligram per kilogram IM dose of ketamine is gonna make the patient incapacitated and unable to examine for the next week. If you think about a, a 15 minute transport time, if you IM ketamine that patient on the scene, they're gonna be neuro accessible within probably an hour. And if you think about the time it takes to get to the hospital, to get unloaded, to get switched over on the hospital stretcher, to get to the CT scanner, because they're gonna get a scan from, from head through pelvis, back to the room before the consultants are there, yeah, they're probably going to be close to awake by then. I, I so I think, it's, I, think it's a, I think it's overblown. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I didn't get to use my trauma patient, which is my East Texas drunk Bubba gets bashed in the head. He clearly has to have uh, some neuroimaging, but is too combative, uh, too uncooperative. That's the perfect patient uh, to use this on, right? So you give him four per kilo of ketamine, you get the workup done, and this guy wakes up in uh, 40 minutes after his nice sleep off and normal neuroimaging, calm as a baby. So I think that's a good lead in. You know, we obviously uh, use and approve of 
ketamine use here at MCHD in, in various forms and fashions. Tell the listeners, Dr. Dixon, a little bit about our ketamine experience here at MCHD and some of the some of the history and and, and kind of where we're coming from with this with this discussion. So we have a, a long history with uh, ketamine use here that started well before Dr. Patrick and I's uh, tenure. It actually started with uh, with Jay Kobar and then continued on with the previous medical director, Mark Escott. And when when these guys started this intervention here, it was it was fairly new. I mean, we, we have this data. We collected data from 2012 to 2016. We had 902 ketamine interventions during that time, of which 338 of those were for agitated delirium. In that 338 group, about two-thirds were male, mean age of 36, and the average dose was 200, about about 300 milligrams of ketamine, uh, almost 80% of them given in the IM route. Uh, of those, 94% showed an improvement in their clinical clinical condition. I think the, worry, the worrisome thing here, and the thing I hear from medics, Casey, is that, gosh, when I give them the ketamine, sometimes it, it, it seems like they quit breathing and they need to be intubated. And there are some other, some other anal studies and stuff that have come out that kind of suggest, gosh, there's a higher rate of intubations in these patients. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so there was a October 2017 study that was done at Hennepin uh, up in Minnesota, and they looked at ketamine use in the pre-hospital setting. And they did have a higher rate of intubation than I think most people would like to see. But if you drill down into their data, um, the same emergency receiving doc intubated over a third of the patients um, in the study. So I think part of ketamine use is familiar, familiarity with what a patient looks like after they get ketamine, um, number one. And that is, they're, you know, they're going to be out. Um, and there's somebody that if a patient rolled in off the street and looked like that, you would worry about them being able to protect their airway. But if I know that patient just caught ketamine and I've seen this over and over and over again, I'm less likely to jump to my, you know, my glide scope or my ET, ET tube and intubate them. Um, secondly, I think that our experience here at MCHD and my own personal clinical experience is that if you push it too fast, if you slam it, the patient is going to get apneic and is going to vomit. And that can definitely lead you to, to need for intubation. Right. And that actually brings up, you know, what do you watch for in this, which is, you know, the most common complications are the recovery agitation, which is about half the patients, a little bit more than, uh, I'm sorry, not half the patients, about one in 20 of these patients will have some type of mild or moderate recovery agitation, i.e. as the ketamine wears off, they'll come back through this kind of psychic zone where they have an area or a uh, time of, of acute delirium. The other common one is about one in 10 of these patients will have some type of emesis with it. And I, in my experience, it's how fast that I've usually had that complication in the IV dose when I've given it rapid IV push. You always have to be ready to manage these patients' airway and follow through with some airway intervention if you need to. And, and lastly, you know, the, the scary side effect, the scary complication that uh, we, we talk up a lot is, is uh, laryngospasm. And again, it's exceedingly rare, but it does happen, and we get worried about it. But your, you know, your thought process, your pathway through laryngospasm with, with ketamine is is fairly straightforward. You, you try to bag them through it, and oftentimes it's transient and will resolve. And if you can't bag them through it, then you've got the medication in your airway bag, whether it's uh, depolarizing or non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade, and paralyze them and and 
and intubate them. It's, yeah, agreed. It, it, and, and it's such a low incidence in, in this study, right? It was less than 1% of the patients actually had apnea. I just think they're exceedingly low. I mean, these complications are, I, I think that we worry about laryngospasm and we worry about uh, transient apnea. But at the end of the day, they're the least common complications, less than 1% for both of them. And the most common complications that we really have to look out for is, as we said before, the vomiting or the agitation, the, the recovery agitation, which is just the patient metabolizing off the medication. We've given them a disassociative dose, and they've drifted back down through that psychic zone where they get some agitation with it, which can be easily managed in most cases. So I think that's a good spot to, uh, to wrap us up and kind of recap uh, the main points. First off, agitated patients come in many different flavors. Try to group them in your mind from the kind, sweet, demented grandma that you need to hold her hand, the agitated but cooperative patients, the drunk, non-traumatic, just disruptive, annoying patient that's disruptive, again, without danger, that may need some benzos, to the excited delirium and the dangerous trauma, high mechanism, possibly intoxicated patients that may not fall under clear excited delirium syndrome definition, but these are the ones that we want to go ketamine straight away. Remember our sedation dose here at MCHD is one to two milligrams per kilogram IV and four milligrams per kilogram IM. You know, we ketamine these excited delirium patients as a drop of the hat. Remember the high-risk trauma patients need that same immediacy. In these patients, when we know they're sick and we know that they're gonna get a huge workup once they get to the hospital, you know, messing around with an IV, we've seen this in, in several of our chart reviews here, uh, can be really difficult, both because, you know, the patient may be bleeding and hypovolemic, there may be, you know, they're, they're already disruptive, it's, it's chaotic, just go straight to the IO. I think IO first line, when the, when the patient's high risk is entirely, entirely reasonable. Don't slam ketamine, you're gonna get nausea and vomiting you're going to get apnea and if you do get apnea bag through it and that's really that really about wraps it up anything you'd like to add no nope. all right guys thank you all for joining us if you have questions or comments please email us at the podcast email and we look forward to talking to you all soon thanks this podcast was brought to you by the montgomery county hospital district texas production and editing by andrew adams questions or comments which are always welcome can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.